Hello, Gabby here. Great to have you join me today on the My Possible Self podcast. My Possible Self is a mental health and well-being app clinically proven to reduce stress, anxiety and low mood. We want to give you access to the best toolkits available to improve your mind and manage your mental health. Teaming up with our friends at the Priory World Leaders in Mental Health Services, we have created modules, toolkits, videos, activities and much more using proven psychological methods to teach you coping mechanisms so that you can live happier and healthier. The app and all of its content is currently still free to download. Just search My Possible Self in your App Store search engine and we will appear. And today I think you're going to learn yet more helpful strategies and exercises from our guest. Alistair Campbell is a writer, communicator and strategist, perhaps best known for his role as former Prime Minister Tony Blair's spokesman, press secretary and director of communications and strategy. Well, spin doctor, to put it more simply. Alistair co-founded the all-party campaign Equality for Mental Health, which secured an extra £600 million for mental health services in the UK. And he is an ambassador for several mental health charities. More recently, you might have spotted him on Breakfast TV presenting Good Morning Britain next to Susanna Reid. Alistair's autobiographical book, Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression, is his honest, raw account of Alistair's lifelong struggle with depression and how he's learned to deal with it. And he's going to share some of his findings in our conversation today. Alistair, I just wanted to say from the get-go, thank you for doing this. You're a person in the public eye, I'm sure, very busy. We haven't launched the podcast series yet. And when we reached out to you, uh, you immediately said yes. The fact that you've generously given your time today to support what we're doing at My Possible Self, we're grateful and I just wanted to acknowledge that. Not Not at all, not at all. Thank you. So, shall we shall we do this? Yeah, let's go, yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's a huge huge subject to um dive into, but I am thrilled that we get to tackle it with you, Alistair. And I'm just going to jump right in with some facts from the World Health Organization. Globally, more than 264 million People of all ages suffer from depression. They say it affects women more than men, but I suspect that's maybe because men are less likely to admit that they suffer from it. And you do such an incredible job in both the book, Living Better, and in the documentary, Depression in Me, of describing to you what depression is. And I know to everybody it's different, but I'd love if you could start the episode off on um, describing... What happens to you when you experience depression? Yeah. I mean, it's not, I think it's not just that it's different to every individual. I mean, I think it's different. Uh, I mean, I describe in the book a kind of amalgam of what it's like. But for example, the last depressive episode I had, it wasn't that long, but it was, it was quite intense. Um, and it was very different to how I describe it in the book. So it was like, it was almost, it was like it was instant, whereas in the book, what I describe, and I think this is more more common for me, it's I I, I always it's really weird. I always lift my left hand like that and I point up there because that's where it comes from, somewhere up there. And it's usually when I'm waking up, not always, but usually when I'm waking up, and I wake up and I just feel there's this this cloud up there, and it, but it's not a cloud in the, it's something that I can. It's got a taste and it's got a smell. It's got a shape. And it just sort of, it just moves towards me. And the more I try and push it away, the the faster it seems to come. And I've now got to a place where I just say, okay, you know. Bring it on. Come on then. Fucking yeah. hell, let's do it again, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it sort of, and it comes in and it, it kind of, it's almost like it just, it fills my body. Yeah. Um, in the documentary, you said it's jelly-like. Which that's, yeah. I guess, how you describe you absorb it. Yeah, it's like a kind of. Or, I mean, it's, there's various ways of thinking. When I talk about jelly, it means it's sort of, 
there's a texture and there's a touch and I can feel it and it's kind of coming all over me. It's like, yeah, maybe I think of the jelly because it's like pouring something into a mould and your, and your body is the mould. And it's just like this thing's taking you over. And, um, and then I'm like, into once I'm into it, I'm, I'm kind of like, well, a bit of, here we go. Do, I'm much better now at, at remembering what it used to be like and how I've got through it before. The, I think the, the thing that gets me through it most is the knowledge that I've got through it before. That's the thing. And even as I describe it, if somebody's read the book or watched the documentary, they'll think, oh, that's different to what you said before. And that's because it's never the same. It's never exactly the same. I tried to give a sense of what it's like. Um, and it is interesting how this last one that was, that was literally just like a boom like that. They're quite rare, but when they happen, they're horrible because you kind of feel your motoring and things are fine and then bang, you're just gone. And your depression went undiagnosed for years. Can you trace back to the first time one of these episodes came on? Can you remember the first time you really sort of felt something strange happening? No, I think, you see, I would point to my breakdown in 1986 as the first time when it was obvious I was ill. I had an illness. I'd been having, I had psychosis. Uh, I was hospitalized. But even, even after that, I wouldn't have defined it as, dep- as, as having been driven there by depression. And, and what happened was because I'd been drinking so heavily, the basic diagnosis was that I was drinking too much. So I stopped drinking. I didn't touch alcohol for 13 years. And yet the depressions kept coming intermittently. But even then, I wasn't defining them as depression. I was thinking, oh, I'm stressed. Oh, I'm working too much. Oh, you know, but I was never saying to myself, this is depression. I only really, really, really fundamentally accepted it was depression in 2005 when I went to see somebody for the first time, really, since I left hospital. So in 1986 to 2005, I just dealt with it myself. Um, And then 2005, I started seeing somebody regularly and and he said, look, you know, you've got a really bad depression. And mm. Was that a relief when somebody put that description to it? No, no, it wasn't really because I kind of, I, I did know deep down. But I'd never wanted to kind of confront it. And I'd always wanted to say, well, I'll just get through it myself. I don't need to go and see anybody. Um, and I did, you know, I was very, very, I was high functioning when I was, had a drink problem. I was high functioning with my depression. But it became... You sometimes need these kind of, you know, these crisis moments to bring yourself to your senses. And, and it was a crisis moment. I'm going to describe in the book, I was beating myself up on the, you know, out with Fiona out for a walk and I'm, I'm punching myself in the face. Yeah, that when I read that, that did. It, I mean, I admire your courage in sharing something so personal, but it, it did take me aback. And then I looked at it in another way of, wow, that's going to help a lot of people because I'm sure many have experienced similar similar things where you know it's kind of like putting a physicality to something that internally you're really suffering so much well, you know what the other day i was on the tube um and a, a young woman got on the train and she got on and i actually first noticed her because she wasn't wearing a mask right mm-hmm. uh, and i just thought, mm. so and also i'll be honest she was quite good looking as well so i'm looking at this <laughs> gets in the train and she had her she had her sleeves rolled up like that and i looked closely and they were absolutely shredded with scars shredded um for self-harm now the thing is that what i was doing either through drink back in the day yeah or beating myself up in 2005 it's a form of self-harm yeah and you know that's what i was doing and i didn't torture because i always I, i don't know it's something weird about the tube Apart from during the Olympics, nobody ever talks to anybody on the tube. And <laughs> so I didn't, but I kind of wanted to talk to her because I wanted to say, I wanted to have a conversation about whether that was what it was like, whether she was cutting herself because of, you know, depression. And, and the other thing, uh, you know, I, I also thought it was, it was remarkable that she was, you know, I've, I've got to be honest, I think if I was cutting myself, I think I would hide it. I think I'd hide it, and she didn't. Um, the, the whole thing about, you know, this all takes very different forms. and But for me, that it was, a, it was a psychiatrist that I saw after that incident who basically talked to me and 
diagnosed me and analyzed me and said, look, you've got, you know, you have depression. And I saw him for a long time and I put all the exercises that we did in the book. I now see him very infrequently. I see him when I have a really big plunge. That's it. Um, but, you know, it really, really, really helped. It got me to a much better place. Mm. There are many causes of depression, genetic vulnerability, stressful life events, um, medications, medical problems. Now, you've spent a lot of time researching your own depression and, mm. and sharing your discoveries. But have you been able to draw any conclusions as to what you think are at the root of yours? Not not conclusion that I can say, you know, it, like when I was a teenager, I broke my leg and my arm several times doing various things. And I can say, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit delayed. I broke, I broke my wrist in two places recently. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> but I, I know that when I broke my leg the first time, it was because I was playing rugby and that bloke went into my leg at the wrong time at the wrong angle and broke my leg. The next time I broke my leg, it's because I was messing about on top of a tractor and I fell off and I broke my leg. Mm -hmm. And I'm 100% confident that's a firm conclusion. With my depression, the short answer is no. Mm. But I think there are, there are things that I'm more confident that I can at least say maybe are part of it. I do think that maybe there is a, not genetic, but there's something in me Mm -hmm. that maybe lends itself to it. And I do think there are a couple of events in my life that I think maybe exacerbated it. One was when we had to move from the north of England to the Midlands when I was about 10, 11, because my dad had been very badly injured mm. um, and he had to get a new job and move. And then I think the second really big kind of event that had a massive impact on me that may have had an impact on mental health was my brother being diagnosed with schizophrenia. This is Donald. Yeah. Now, I don't know that. I don't know that, right? But I think it's possible. It's certainly, and it's interesting, when I wrote the, the book, I sent it to my, because it's all very personal about me and about Donald, about my parents and everything else, I sent it to my sister, who's the only one of us still alive, and to see what she thought. And she said, it's really interesting what you say about, you know, the impact of Donald, because I don't even remember, and of course I hadn't remembered, I don't know if you remember, she said, but I had all sorts of eating disorder issues after he got diagnosed. Now, I remember she'd had eating issues, but I hadn't remembered that they'd come on the back of that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So, like I said, firm conclusion, no, mm -hmm. but some suspicions, yes. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting when you look at things like alcohol, for example. So my mum's side of the family is virtually teetotal, right? Just you know, they don't drink. Mm. And my dad's side of the family, you know, Hebrides, bagpipe culture, um, quite a lot of drinking going on. So I've got a chapter about my cousin who took his own life and he had alcohol problems. And you know, there's, there's uh, I think both my brothers at different points had addiction issues. And so you kind of think, well, maybe that's a part of it. But I don't think, I don't think you can say that's it. That's the reason. Yeah. Um, so no, I've, I've what I've researched less is I've researched less the causes than the possible ways of dealing with it. I think that's what I've looked into more deeply. Just um, going back to to Donald, you credit him or his mental illness as the real reason that you became so passionate about the issue of mental health and. I really liked or appreciated the fact that you highlighted in the book that he was an expert on living a good life with severe mental illness. And I thought that was a really important thing to say and an important message to say. And he kept a job for, I think, most of his life and was clearly loved by everybody in his network. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I really did enjoy learning a little bit about about your brother donald yeah well, i'm glad i'm glad about that i think i think that you know he he wasn't it look if 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 you knew him he was an extraordinary bloke i mean i say in you know we come from quite a large extended family and i think if you had a vote of who was the favorite cousin who was the favorite nephew he would have won it by a mile right he had way more friends than i've got uh he was a very good musician he had his own flat he drove his own car he held down the job he was married briefly but it didn't last very long 
Um, and his doctor once said to me, he said, I've had so many patients with schizophrenia, but I've had nobody quite like Donald. I won't say he didn't let it get him down. He did, it did get him down, but it never got him down to the extent that he couldn't always think of something positive to do and to say. Mm. So, yeah, he was, he was extraordinary. And, and, um, he was, he was quite a positive advert for liver schizophrenia. You know, he was, uh, yeah. uh, and, and the music, the music thing's interesting. I mean, I played the bagpipes. He was a very good player. He was Glasgow university's official piper for 27 years. Yeah. My neighbors must keep, have loved you. <laughs> don't make neighbor jokes about bagpipes. Okay. Don't. Sorry. Neighbor, okay. Lo- my neighbors love my bagpipes. Okay. I'll tell you okay. that now. Then I give you a phone number, and she, she complains if I don't. <laughs> hey, play. I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> but Donald, um, I I sometimes wonder if Donald's obsession with the bagpipes, which it was, it wasn't obsessed. He was obsessed when, when he died. My sister and I were clearing out his his house, his flat, and uh, I mean, we found he was a hoarder. We found kilts galore, sporans galore practice chanters that's a practice chanter dozens of them wow uh, he had about 10 sets of bagpipes i mean he was like he was obsessed with the bagpipes but i wonder if a part of it was he was making his own noise because mm. he had the noises in his head a lot of the time you know and yeah. um but yeah but it gave him purpose it, the music gave him purpose and it is a great form of therapy as well i was oh, yeah. a for a year a music therapy volunteer at a children's hospital in nashville oh, Mm. Yeah, I do think it's it's one of the best forms of therapy out there, mm. making music, listening to music. While we're still on the subject of your family and family members, you did dedicate a whole chapter of your book to your cousin who you tragically lost to suicide. Again, I go back to this word of bravery. You admitted that you have suicidal thoughts from, from time to time. And so... <sighs> I wonder, I guess, and I know we have to be careful with wording, but in terms of like messages with anybody who is either struggling themselves with suicidal thoughts or perhaps they've lost a loved one through suicide, and do you have any words of comfort that you could offer from your own personal experiences? I guess on this on the suicidal ideation, funny enough, I had it in this last episode quite badly. Um, one of the things that gets me through it now a lot better is the fact that I'll tell Fiona straight away, which I never used to. Mm. And that's a pro, you know, that, that can be, that might sound like I'm putting the burden on her, but I'm not really. I am in a way, I'm sharing it, but also it just helps to do that. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, whereas what I'd do before, I just used to, I literally did just never tell anybody, I'd deny anything bad was going on at all. And I think the other thing I'd say is the reason I wanted to write that chapter, and I didn't write that chapter without showing it to his family. He's got a widow. He's got three children who are now grown up. That would have been a you know granddad. He's got he's got grandchildren now. He died in two thousand, so it's twenty one years ago now. Part of the motivation was I can't stand it when, on the back of somebody taking their own life, people will say, "Oh, it's so selfish to do that. Such a selfish thing to do." My didn't they think about the people they were leaving behind? And I, I'm convinced, I don't know, but I'm convinced that Lackey would have thought he was making life better for the people he was leaving behind. Because that's what I think when I'm having those thoughts. I'm thinking Fiona would be better off without me. The kids would be happy if I wasn't here. The world would be better if I wasn't here. You know, you have those thoughts and as they're happening, they're real. And so I wanted to write it as a way of saying to them, and, and I'm really, you know, they've all said in their different ways, it's kind of helped them to think that that's the case. You know, I think I think anybody who's been through that, you have the only way to get meaning from it is to, I think, to understand that their illness was such that the person who takes their own life, their illness was such that part of them i'm absolutely convinced of this was doing it for the people that they love they didn't want to be a burden anymore they didn't want to you know so that i mean that they're not words of wisdom and they're not words of comfort but i think it's important that we understand suicide is the ultimate in mental illness you know i talk in the book about my depression scale one is you know 
out-of-control mania when you think you're Superman, you can fly off buildings, and 10 is suicide. Now, I've been two to nine, right? And, and, and having that scale helps me have that as my parameters. I'm never going to go one because that's really, really dangerous. I'm never going to, I hope I'll never go 10. So when I'm nine, part of having the scale is right. I'm right at rock bottom here. How do I bring myself back? We're coming quite far in terms of the talking about mental health in general, but I still feel, and I spoke to Rory O'Connor, who wrote a, the book When It Is Darkest about suicide prevention mm. um, recently, and he believes that we've still a long way to go in terms of because it's it's a harder so it's it's hard, isn't it, to talk to somebody about suicide? It's hard to to find yeah. the right words. No, and, I, I think it is. I, I think you know, in a way. Where we are, you've got you know depression and anxiety of well, definitely there's more openness, there's more talking about it. I still think bipolar disorder is doesn't hasn't quite found where its place is on the on the spectrum and in the debate. You know, illnesses like schizophrenia, the schizoaffective disorder, the really serious mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. There's there's an understanding mm -hmm. at least, mm -hmm. but I think suicide. I think you're right. I think it's still kind of out there as that's the one we don't really want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, I think if we did talk about it more, we might end up saving, you know, lives. saving a few lives. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, can I go back to touch briefly on two things, actually? You, and I'm, I'm quoting you, your depression drowning drinking days. Mm -hmm. So we all know that Alcohol is a depressive and often used to, to mask what's going on. But can you take me back to that, that sort of time in your life? Because you were, uh, you know, thriving as a journalist and loads going on. And, and also it sounds like you could tolerate alcohol so you didn't necessarily mm. appear wasted, which is, I mm. think, when it can be more dangerous because you're that sort of highly functioning alcoholic. Yeah, I, I um, it's interesting, even... even... When I ended up in hospital, uh, and, and you saw in the documentary the the, the 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 bit that I did where I'm sitting and talking to two old friends from Fleet Street, Sid Young, my mate from the Mirror, and Chris Potter from the Start. And Chris was always of the view he said he just he didn't think I had a drink problem because he didn't think I drank that much. But I think that's because he, as you say, he didn't really see me staggering drunk. I did I did have a ridiculous capacity for drink. Um, I could drink a lot and I'd be drunk and I'd be probably louder than I normally would be. I might get a bit punchy at times. I'd probably, you know, talk the sort of rubbish that a lot of people talk when they're absolutely hammered. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't do was, you know, fall over drunk on the floor. Well, I did sometimes, but not like, you know, I drank quantities that, that you know, I, I don't know how I did it. I couldn't do it now. Even if you paid me twenty million dollars, I couldn't do it. Um, and so, and then the other thing was, even though I would feel rough in drink, after, you know, in the morning I get hangovers and stuff. I, I started to develop this habit of, of throwing up every morning and feeling better. Um, and so I was functioning. I was. And didn't think, oh, that's that's probably not a good sign. Yeah, I've, I've probably thought that, but I, but more than that, I thought I feel better now. I can get to work. <laughs> um, right. And, yeah. And then yeah. you start playing these. Look, you play you, you, the addictive personality. Does you know you, you persuade yourself that that abnormal things are normal? Yeah. You know, yeah. I would, so so like I'd wait for Fiona to go swimming in the morning. Fiona's swum a mile every day that I've known her every day of my life. Mm -hmm. With Fiona, she swims every morning, and I'd, I'd wait for her to go out swimming. Then I'd throw up. I'd go to the toilet. I'd make myself sick, and I'd feel better. Wow. And then I'd have a shower and I'd brush my teeth. I'd, I'd look in the mirror and I'd have a shave, and and I think, yeah, you look all right. You can do it. And off I'd go to work again, mm. and I'd be f fine. Mm. And then you you tell yourself things like, oh well, I feel okay. And then you see other people in the newsroom who look really rough. And you think, oh, he didn't have a drink very well last night. And then I think, you know, and then you, you, you start to tell yourself, so what's the earliest you can have a drink? Yeah. And the way you go. And, you and then the thing about journalism in those days, particularly. It was the culture, just, wasn't it? Well, you could persuade yourself 
you go to a pub, you're working because you're talking to people. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. guy at the end of the bar, he might have the biggest story of your life. He looks interesting. I'll go and talk to him. Think, you have a drink, mate? Have a drink? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and the thing was, sometimes you didn't get stories in pubs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you think then if you hadn't, have, when it all came crashing down and, and this was the big turning point, spring of 1986 and, and mm. you know, your breakdown and that I I. I been thinking a lot about those two police officers and I wonder, did, have they reached out to you since the book came out? No, but you see, they probably won't know. They probably they wouldn't pro- know. Yeah. We don't give police officers enough credit, do we? Because this must happen a lot where they have to... Oh, listen, way more than ever. They're on the front line on this. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. I mean, funny enough, when I, in the documentary, when I went and found the psychiatrist who looked after me in the hospital, uh, Ernest Benny, he did say, do you know what? I've often wondered if it was you. I've often thought, because I, I do remember treating an Alastair Campbell, and I thought, is that him? And I think it, but the policemen, I don't even know if they would have known my name necessarily. Mm. I wasn't that well known. I was a journalist, but I wasn't kind of well known. Mm. But I do often think about them. I, dream, I have dreams about that as well. Mm. I do dream about that. Wow. Um, so, yeah, they were the ones who basically saw I was not well and handled me well enough to get me into a police station and then get me a doctor. Yeah, yeah. You know? The conclusion that you came to at the time with your doctor was maybe maybe I should stop the drink because you'd been drinking yeah. heavily the night before this I, I'd been drinking breakdown. heavily for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Hitting rock bottom, experiencing such an intense psychotic episode, being forced to confront your demons, looking at this from the the positive side the amount of empathy and humility you have for others and your the pioneering work that you're doing in the mental health space do you are you pleased that it happened maybe pleased isn't the right word but are you are you glad it happened and do you think you'd still be drinking if it hadn't have gone to such a dark place to those levels i mean i'm a, i can't i wouldn't i'm not glad it happened I mean, yes and no. Yes and no. I probably am actually. I, I, th- I think, I think intense experience is quite a good thing, as long as it, you know, you can learn from it. And it was incredibly intense. It was an incredibly intense experience, um, and I did learn a lot from it. Um, I actually think that, in a, to some extent, I was misdiagnosed. In that, no, I wasn't misdiagnosed. That's unfair. I think I put too much of the emphasis in my recovery on the drink mm. as opposed to the depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, as long as I sought the drink, and as I say, I went 13 years without touching it, as long as I sought the drink, I'll be fine. Did that help when you quit drinking? It helped, but I don't think it was the only thing. And I think it meant that maybe I didn't look at the other stuff that was going on that was bringing on the depressions, mm. which is what was making me drink. Um, so, but I am, I am glad. I am glad that it happened uh, because I sorted myself out. You know, a lot of things happened. Fiona stood by me when a lot of women wouldn't. She got pregnant a year late. you know, not long afterwards. Now, I, you know, I actually wonder whether the... The, the, the kind of sheer volumes that I'd been drinking had been having an effect on that and that maybe that's why we, she hadn't got pregnant before that. I then think, though, but ha- hang on a minute, what if she got pregnant when I had still been drinking? Yeah. What would I have been like then? Then when we did have Rory, our first son, I actually I stopped smoking as well after that, not long after he was born. So that was another good positive. Uh, I went back to my old job. Um, I left the job that I was doing when I had the breakdown. I went back to my old job, and that that was where I rebuilt my career, really. So a lot of good things came from it, no doubt about it. You know, and, and things like, you know, my first novel really was about, it was it was a way of expunging the breakdown in a way. Mm. Um, so I think in the documentary and the book, the depression book and everything else, and, you, you know, thank you for saying the nice things you do about the campaigning and the advocacy work I do. I wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't for my experience and Donald's experience. I wouldn't be doing it. Mm. So I think good stuff does come from it, yeah. I um, 
really enjoyed reading about when Tony Blair asked you to come and work for him and you, you had I didn't smile at the fact that you hesitated because you were concerned for your own mental well-being but the fact that he ambushed your holiday the way you described Ooh. it it did make me smile but um what I thought was amazing and especially of that time when we weren't talking about mental health like we are now was that Ooh. you put all your cards on the table and you told him exactly you gave it to him straight you said this is what happened Ooh. to me and he seemed to take it on and, and be like, you know, if it's okay with you, it's okay with me. And yeah. and yeah. I I don't even think now enough employers are giving that <clears throat> safe space or maybe handling it the way Tony did back then. No, I think I well, you got to remember that you know we knew it wasn't like it was a job interview with somebody that that didn't know me. I mean, he knew me very well. Yeah. Um, and I think what it was, he was a bit like my boss at the Mirror, Richard, who took me back. He wasn't judging me, but he wasn't basically saying, well, that's who you are. Mm. I think what happens with a lot of people who get mentally ill, the people think, well, they're the mentally ill one, right? Mm. Uh, and that was the other thing that Donald was, was so lucky with. He, his, his Glasgow University, they never defined him as a schizophrenic. You know, they, they defined him as the guy, he's the piper, he's the guy who works in the security department. And he has schizophrenia. And that means sometimes we have to deal with him a bit differently to how we deal with the others. But that was it. Yeah. It wasn't, that wasn't the defining thing. And I think for, no, I think it was a, I think he was, I say in the book that there was a, when I was telling him about, you know, then I started hearing voices. I had bagpipes over here and brass bands here and Elvis Presley was singing here. Abba, Abba, I'm glad they're back. They were in my break. All right. All that was going on. And he did look a bit kind of, oh my God, what we're doing here. But then he said, I'm not bothered if you're not bothered. And that was it, you know. So, and I think that is how we should be. We shouldn't define people by an episode or an illness. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I, I've struggled in the workplace particularly and with my mental health. And I think of a couple of occasions where, where I, I didn't find my bosses were sympathetic enough. There was a kind of like get on with it kind of thing it was like a, yeah like, and, and that's yeah. that's that's still very 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 common yeah um very common and you know but the truth is during the period that i was working for tony i didn't kind of i wasn't adver- i did i did have that discussion with him <clears throat> but thereafter i wasn't advertising when i was feeling really crap but i people who know me people around me they knew but here's the other thing i think you talked about whether the I can look back at the breakdown as a positive thing. I think with my depression, I think a lot of the best work that I did, either in politics or since then, whether it's campaigning or writing or making films or whatever it might be, a lot of the best work I did came when I was either going into a depression or coming out of one. A lot of the best stuff that I did in terms of, you know, writing strategy papers or writing speeches for Tony, whatever it might be, a lot of the best stuff I did, I did it when I was either on the plunge or coming back out. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I know that because I can, I can track the moments when I was really on it. Speaking of strategies, these are very different ones, but um, the tools and techniques that you shared in the book that work for you... I think one of the popular ones or the most popular one is the jam jar. Mm-hmm. So could you kind of give our listeners a quick rundown on what, oh, is that the actual jam jar? <laughs> that is my jam. Well, the actual jam jar that I drew myself, what happened was when I was doing the documentary, I went to Canada to interview a fabulous woman called Janine Austin about genetics. She's a geneticist. She's a genetics counsellor. Uh, but we got chatting and, and she told me she's also gets depression and she's the one who gave me the jam jar which as you realized I has sits on my desk uh, and I travel with it and it's just a way it's just a little tool that I use now and, and but basically what she said was look down the bottom of the jam think of your life as a jam jar down the bottom is the sediment that's your genes, nothing you can do about it. And the rest of the jam jar is your life. And it fills up with good and bad. And, and most of the time, we're coping just about. When we can't cope, the, the lid explodes off the jam jar and we're ill. And instead of trying to undo everything in here, 
we should be trying to grow the jam jar so as we can put more life into it, right? Mm. And so I woke up in the middle of the night. If you now, I'm, Gabby, don't get too upset by this. And, 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 and it's a bit phallic. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that I got up, and that is what oh, I drew. Oh my word! It really is. It, it is, isn't it? But it started just with the bottom bit, okay. which is the sediment down here, and that's life. And then this is the stuff that I've added to it. Yeah. Yeah. FFF, Fiona. So this is basically me saying these are the things that work for me either to stave off depression or to deal with it. FFF is Fiona family friends. Really work on your key relationships. MA, meaningful activity. And for me, that's work. It's got a dotted line. Above the line is work. You've got to make a living. But just as important is the work that changes the world. Then it's sleep, diet, exercise, which I never used to take seriously, but now I'm obsessed about all three. BFC is Burnley Football Club. <laughs> yeah. Music, music, and that is music that I play by my bagpipes, but it's also music that I listen to. Yeah. And I know when I'm depressed, I've got certain musicians that I go to. I go to Jack Brell. I go to Edith Piaf. I go to ABBA. I go to Elvis. Mm -hmm. I go to the Four Seasons. I go to Motown. I go to Diana Ross. I know that, and it might make me sadder for a while, it might make me sadder, but I just, uh, and I, the other thing, here's a little tip for you when you're in a bad place. Listen to music, not the news, read books, not newspapers. I do that. Okay. And then I'm into thematic stuff, creativity, curiosity. And then here over here are the things that you can add. So I've got a new bike, right? My new bike's now part of my jam jar. We've got a new dog. Our, our dog didn't, wasn't born when I did this one. But now she skies in my jam jar. Um, so, and then what's interesting is medication and David, my psychiatrist, they're, they're, they're like almost add-ons. Right. They're the last thing I put in my jam jar rather than the first. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's it. So it's just the thing that when I feel now, when I'm going into a plunge, I just, I, get, I think, okay, right, go and say something to Fiona that's nice. Do some work. Try and do some work. Do some exercise, even if you feel like shit. And the mm -hmm. thing is, you don't have to run a marathon. I've run marathons. Mm -hmm. But actually, what I'll do when I'm feeling really low, I'll think, right, what I'll do is I'll walk to the front door. I'll open the front door. I'll run to that tree at the bottom of the road. I'll run to the next tree. Then I'll run to the next tree. Then I'll run to the next tree. Then I'll run. And that's how I do it. I just do it in these... You know, I don't set myself big goals and all like that. I sell myself very little ones. Step by step. You've touched on this already, that you've devised my mental health scale. And then um, I just want to plug the, the My Possible Self app. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but we've got some... Have, called... yeah. Ah, okay. What did you think? Yeah. Well, it's a very similar approach, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the mood tracker is by far the Ooh. most popular thing on the app. Yeah. Um, and I think all of this stuff is good. And it's like, my, look, my people think I've got my depression scale the wrong way around because, the, you know, one is manic and 10 is suicide, as I said earlier. And maybe it is. Maybe I should kind of flip it around. But that's, that's just how I've always had it. I, I track my mood every morning when I wake up. I say, how do you feel? I just have a little conversation in my head every morning when I wake up. Where are you? And as long as I'm 3-4, if I'm 3-4, I know it's going to be a good day. If I'm two, I've got to be very, very careful. If I'm two, I'm getting really manic. I've got to be careful. If I'm five, I'm okay. If I'm six, I'm starting to worry about going down the other end. So it's just a way of me then saying, okay, that's where I am. And then I, I go to this stuff and I try, to, I try mm -hmm. to use it. I think it's what works for you, the individual, and, and something that I think is specific to you is when we talk about mindfulness, I think most people think of things like yoga and meditation, and for you it was staring at a raisin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I've got to tell you, one of the many, Fiona and my grace, my daughter, are obsessed with yoga. I've never done yoga in my life. I don't think I can. Oh, you're missing out, honestly. It changed. I've, I discovered it over the pandemic. Right, okay, well, I may be, but I've just decided one of my running themes with Fiona, she got a thing on her door downstairs that says, doing yoga, keep out. And I've got this thing now where I just, as I walk by the door, I go, yoga is destroying the planet. <gasps> Hello, it's terrible, isn't it? I don't mean that. I don't mean it, but I, I just, but like, give me an example right, where you say it's about what works for you. Yeah. 
So I've discovered, and it's now in Machamja, I've discovered in the last couple of years, I really love cold water swimming, right? I did my first winter at the Lido, open air. The lowest it got was four degrees. I went every day through the winter. Um, but it was brilliant for me. Yoga, brilliant for you. Yeah. So yeah. with you know, and I but I would put those down in yeah, as exercise. I'd put them down as exercises, what we do that works for us. Mm. Now listen, the truth, I'll be honest with you about yoga. I'm I'm just embarrassed because I can't I can't I'm the most unsupple person you've ever met. Ah, uh, do you see, Alistair, that's the ego getting in the way. I know, I know. Who'd have thought who'd have thought I had a <laughs> well, I mean, it's all as well about it's about the chemistry of finding the right teacher. And I think that's why in the past Ooh. I tried and, and been unsuccessful. And then during the pandemic and being stressed at work, I just I needed something that took me out of my own head. And I thought, Do you know what, I'm going to yeah. give this another go. And then I just happened to fall upon the right teacher well listen that's good and, and you know both Fiona and Grace absolutely swear mm. by it absolutely swear by and, it and just you know talking about chemistry and the right teacher I want to segue that into finding the right therapist or psychotherapist mm. and I think you would agree that's very important and bringing it back to the overarching theme of this discussion depression and when you do need to do you value talk therapy as well do you find that really helpful because some people find it hard to open up well, it is hard. I mean, it can be hard, but and I, and I think it is about it's about finding the right person. I'm sure of that. And that person doesn't always have to be a medical person. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just finding the right person. Uh, it might be a friend, might be a family member, might be a colleague. But I think if it gets to be an illness that is affecting your life and your work and your your relationships and I think finding the right person to talk to a professional is really, really important. And I was just incredibly lucky. Well, I, was, I had a very good experience with a psychiatrist back in the breakdown. He was really good. But then I started to see somebody. It was a bad experience. I felt this guy just wasn't, he just wasn't remotely on my wavelength. And it, and, it, and it didn't work. And I think that is partly what made me then think, sod it, I'll just do it myself. Um, but the guy that I found in 2005, and it, you look, everything's about relationships in the end. He was already the psychiatrist to, to one of my closest friends who was already seeing him and who was really worried about me and who'd been saying to me for ages, I want you to come and see this guy. And I said, no, no, I'm fine. So when we had the incident, bang, bang, bang on the heath, beating myself up, he, I phoned him afterwards. I said, listen, I want to see this guy. And I saw him and I, you know, that was 16 years ago. Um, and I saw him very intensely for quite a while, quite a few years. And now I see him very, very occasionally um, because it, I feel I'm in a better place and I feel all the stuff we've done together has helped us get to a better place. And yeah, the raisin, <laughs> the raisin's weird, isn't it? A little. I mean, I like a raisin for sure, but... Well, no, but it was, it was this thing about, um, you know, I'm not a mindful person in, in that. It's hard. Mine's always... Well, I'm always off to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But I found myself doing that and it, and it really worked. He basically said, just look at a raisin in your hand, roll it around your hand and let your thoughts go where they go. And, you, you know, in the book I say, they went into this incredible place where I, out of looking at the raisin, I sort of had this, it wasn't an epiphany, but it was like, it was about know your place in the world and, and, be, and try and be happy with it. You know that raisin has a place in the world, you know, uh, and 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 it's amazing. And when you look at it, and it's got all these contours, and it looks different in different angles. And then you think about where did it come from, and where's it going to go? And I mean, I I, I didn't eat it. <laughs> Is it in a jar somewhere? Is it in the jam it's jar? Jar? <laughs> no, I I, if it, I I did. I don't know where it is now, but I kept it for quite a long time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, again, what works for you, it's brilliant. And it's really yeah. hard with a, you know, if you have like monkey brain to actually be present and not be sort of panicking about things that are in the past or worrying about what's going to happen in the future, to just be Ooh. in the moment, it's unsettling, I think, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. and I, I actually think, so that was like the raisin thing that, that really kind of, for that moment, for some reason, sort of worked. But actually, when we talk about music earlier, sometimes for me, it is, it's listening to music or it's playing music. 
Yeah. I'm totally in that. That's all I'm thinking about. Yeah. You know, nothing else is happening. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's how if you've got a very busy life and a busy mind, very hard to get that sort of sense of still and calm. And to be honest, we get a lot of it in sleep. But I have very, <laughs> I have very lively sleep. I have a lot of dreams, you know, and I have a lot of stuff going on when I'm asleep. Do you still take sertraline? I do, yeah. I take it myself and I found it to be a complete game changer. I've been on a lot of different medications on and off and it's the, put it this way, I've been on it now for six years and I, I, I worry about coming off it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely helped. Yeah. Definitely. Well, you know, now in the documentary you saw, I, I met the woman, Joanna Moncrief, who's against, you know, medication as a kind of, you know, the the way to deal with this stuff. And and she said, look, I think it's because you're older, you're wiser, you've got a different lifestyle. And she may be right. She may be right, but I don't want to take the risk. And David, he said, look, the last time you came off it, you were in a bad way. So, you know, why risk it again? Mm, yeah, and on the subject of medication, I believe there's still a lot of people that are suffering from depression that are very resistant or reluctant to go on any kind of antidepressant. I mean, sertraline doesn't just treat depression, it treats various anxiety disorders, um, panic attacks, OCD, PTSD. I was like that for years. I was like that. Whenever I was on medication, I wanted to get off it straight away. And that's part of me still does, but I, I kind of, it goes back to the point I made about relationships. I trust David. I trust him to to work out what's going on with me based upon what I tell him and what he sees. I, I, it's a relationship of trust. You know, if I'd have met, jo I say in the book, if I'd have met Joanna Moncrief, I really liked her. I really, really liked her. If I'd have met her and she'd been the first person to look after me and she'd have said to me, look, I really don't think medications, maybe I'd have gone that route. I don't know. But I think that that's what I mean about, as you said, why it's so important, finding the right person yeah. and having that relationship of trust. And it's hard and you've got to, it's like as just with medication. One of the best things about David, he never says that he knows for sure. He always says, this is a bit trial and error. We don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It might work, might not, but let's give it a go. Mm. Um, and I think too often with medical people, they, they, they're, they're too keen to say, this is the problem. This is how you have to resolve it. Mm. You know, it's not as simple as that. I know that you've got such a supportive family and network around you. Mm. So what advice could you give to somebody who has, who is living with, you know, his partner, a child, a parent that's, that's got depression? Then what's, what have you found has been helpful for you in terms of the support from your family? Um, I think the first thing I say is to be open to having it. Now, what I mean by that is that, you know, for years, decades, I didn't want their support. I didn't want Fiona saying to me, are you all right? I wanted to know she was around, but I didn't want her in my face. And, and a lot of our problems, I think, were caused by me saying, why, just leave me alone. I'm fine, leave me alone. So I think the first thing I'd say is to be open to them wanting to support you. My daughter, for example, Grace, she's very in my face when I'm depressed. She's How like, in that? a nice way, she's right. both, what can we do? What can we do? And also she's just very kind of there. She wants to be there physically for me. Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, in the past, I'd have pushed people away that wanted to be like that. Just let me sort this on my own kind of thing. So I think I'd say be open and, and also, <laughs> at the risk of blatant book plugging, read Fiona's chapter in the book. Mm -hmm. I think it gives a great insight into Fiona's there for me, but she's also there for herself. And that can sometimes, and I, and, and that, I think that's really important because I definitely dragged her down for a lot of years. And one of the best things that happened was when David, my psychiatrist, he said, oh, look, we talk so much about Fiona and your children. I'd like to see them. I'd like to meet them. And so Fiona came along for a few sessions and it was hard. We said some really hard stuff to each other. But what happened out of that was that David 
in a way that I've never been able to do, David was able to open Fiona to the possibility, to the understanding that it's not her fault. And, and the kids, he, he was able to say to them, look, when you see your dad comatose on the sofa, you must never, ever, ever think that it's your fault. You're the people that he needs, and you're the only people that he trusts enough to let you see him like that, right? So understand that. And, and I, think it's, I think that really, really was a, a big help. I don't know what it must be like for, for families that there is still that pull-yourself-together attitude. I think that must be really, really hard. Um, but the truth is, and, you know, we've talked a lot about the Living Better book, that, but the, the, I wrote a book called My Name Is, which is about an alcoholic, a novel about an alcoholic teenager. And I, want, I wrote it, I wanted to show the extent to which that one person's problem has this ripple effect on so many people. And I just wish we'd understand that. I, you know, one of the reasons I love my psychiatrist, and, I'm, you know, I think he's just a wonderful bloke, he gave me that insight. He sort of decided that to treat my depression, he had to see the family because he knew it was affecting them as well. And that was affecting me. And I, and I wish we, I wish we'd understood that that is probably the best way to go. And they probably found that really helpful as well. Yeah, I yeah. think they did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we should end this chat on the very last line from David Surgeon in the book. Yeah. No, I said to him, David, what is the fucking point? I often say that. That's what I feel when I'm very depressed. What is the point of living? So he's, I said, what is the point? And he said, the point of what? I said, the point of life. He said, the point of life, Alistair, is to live it. Brilliant. <laughs> what a pleasure it's been to chat to you today, Alistair. Thank you so much. All right, listen, lovely to talk to you. Take care. He doesn't mince his words, does he? Thanks again to Alistair Campbell for a fantastic and very honest conversation about his journey with depression and a big thank you to you for joining us today on the my possible self podcast if you don't already follow us we are at my possible self on instagram and twitter and i've been at radio gabby every tuesday from here on we are going to release a new episode of the podcast so make sure you subscribe to us in the usual podcast places until next time thanks for listening <laughs>